0: do
1: is Sober in the City. Real life, real addiction, real recovery. For Sober in the City all week, subscribe to our podcast by visiting soberinthecity.com or search Sober in the City in the iTunes store. Stick this in a shot glass and shoot it. It's Dangerous Debbie Strand. Sober
2: in the City is brought to you in part by Believe Treatment Center. At Believe Treatment Center, we understand. Call now 1-855-874-2354 or visit BelieveTreatmentCenter.com to find out how we can help and how your insurance can pay for it. We're back with more Sober in the City, and I'm Debbie Strand. If you think you or someone you care about might have a problem with drugs, pot, alcohol, food issues, sex, gambling, porn, smoking, hair pulling. Yeah, I know. It sounds like a buzzkill, but really sober is better. I swear. Give us a call 800-SOBER-05, 800-SOBER-05. We'd love to hear from you what your opinion of the topic is. Tell me if you're staying sober, how you're doing it, or why you went and got wasted yesterday. We always have a reason to go back out. Share yours here. Tell us the resentment. Call us 800-SOBER05. Visit us at soberinthecity.com and listen live on the Sober in the City app for both Apple and Android devices. And if you want a topic covered, something you're struggling with, give me a call and we'll put a show together just for you. Right now, how did you start to become honest with others, with self? How does blatant honesty hurt others? And how can you be honest in all your affairs? Blatant honesty. Honey, do I look fat in these jeans? (laughs) Yes. If you ask a question that's stupid, you deserve that answer. But you get the point. The difference between the brutal honesty and rigorous honesty. You know, my ex-husband, he used to get this question pretty good. When I would ask him that stupid question, he would say something like, they might not be your favorite jeans." So he had a way of dancing around it. And uh, I copied this off my Facebook page when I posted the question, the difference between brutal honesty and rigorous honesty. Brutal honesty is self-centered. Its focus is saying whatever is true just to make you feel good about yourself or to relieve your guilt. Sometimes to try to get others to think the same as we do. Rigorous honesty, on the other hand, is authentic. It respects the effects of your disclosure on others. It protects others from being harmed by it. Rigorous honesty and boundaries are important to be a more loving soul. If you think of others feelings before we speak, hopefully we can help them understand instead of being defensive and hurt. So the difference between brutal honesty and rigorous honesty, I'm going to go right to the callers. Lynn is calling from Crystal River, Florida. Lynn, welcome to Sober in the City. Hi, Debbie. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Can you explain some of the differences that you've seen between the brutal honesty and the rigorous honesty and how that's worked in your life and in your program of recovery, Lynn?
3: Oh, yes. Um, I think when you're first in recovery, um, it's a little confusing because you think you have to admit to everything you've done. Um, as you move along through your recovery, you realize that as you lose your self-centered ways, that you don't have to admit everything that you've done if it's going to hurt or harm another person because basically what you're doing is you're laying your burden onto them to make yourself feel better. As you live your daily life, you try to live the most honest as you can. So once you can decipher the difference, it makes daily life a a whole lot easier. Personal inventory in the fourth step, um, you write everything down, you tell another person. But you don't have, when you go back to make your amends, this is where you have to make your choices wisely. Um, if you've had an affair or several affairs, um, you know, deciding on what you're going to do with your marriage, is it better to tell? Is it better not to tell? Is it better to come clean, just break it if your marriage isn't going to work anyhow? So those are decisions that everybody is faced with new in recovery. So I didn't have very many amends to make. Um, a couple bosses and, um, of course, a couple of people I had heard that were very close to me and my parents. Well, as far as daily honesty, um, once you get into a routine of being a, living an honest life, then you're going to run into friends that you've had that have stuck through you, through your recovery, um, but decided that their needs are very selfish from you. And that's where you have to cut the line and...
2: Well, we're having a heck of a phone day. It looks like we'd lost Lynn. We're going to go to Brian, who's calling from Jackson, Mississippi. Brian, you hear what we're sharing about the difference between rigorous honesty and brutal honesty. Can you share on that and maybe pick up on the thought where Lynn was leaving off? Maybe she'll call back in. I'm not sure.
0: Sure. In my recovery from drug addiction and alcoholism, I remember telling the truth was a very new experience for me. When I was actively in addiction, I had a policy. If I told the truth by accident, I went back and corrected myself. (laughs) So telling the truth was something that came to me only in recovery. I'm in my 28th year of recovery now. And what I remember, I was blessed with some good guides or mentors. And they taught me that to tell really difficult stuff to men and women in my life who had earned my trust. And I would tell them deep, deep things through step process and just deep sharing. But on public level or meeting level or group level, I would share much more conceptually. I would say, I'm struggling with resentment today. I'm struggling with fear today. But I would keep my real gut level stuff, I would keep with people who had earned that trust. And as I became a more trustworthy person myself, some of the great blessings were people that would come to me with their stuff and I would earn their trust. And being somebody who could handle it uh, was important. Learning how to be more gentle and compassionate with honesty, that took a long time. That took a long time. I, uh, I believe it's a, it's a worthy goal, and you know, some days I still make mistakes. but uh, I am positive that deep, deep, deep level honesty is crucial in order to create long-term recovery from addiction and alcoholism. So you need to have some people that you can really lay it all out with. Uh, And as far as the infidelity, I am the mentor to many men and some of the men in early recovery, they're in a big rush to go admit lots of affairs to their current wives. And some of that is the disease of addiction or alcoholism, urging them to blow up the relationship rather than go through the difficult work of repairing the relationship. And I do believe that some things need to be where you just tell your trusted advisor or therapist or someone like that, and you have to live with certain things and not share them at the expense of others.
2: Well, you talk about having them about them not wanting to go through the difficult experience of repairing those relationships. How do they start to repair that relationship once they've admitted what they've done?
0: There are, what I see, three things. One, they, from then on, are deeply, deeply honest, constantly. Today that means your cell phone's wide open, all your emails are wide open, all your communications are wide open and shared. Uh, You work with usually, in my experience, some sort of family therapist. Sometimes they can be offered for free by these large non-denominational churches. Sometimes you can cover it, but family therapy. And then the third piece is some support activity you do together, be that open meetings or celebrate recovery or skydiving. But there has to be a shared experience that you do together.
2: Well, I like that. I'm sitting here taking notes on it. So, but you do have to have the boundaries and that honesty, like you talked about with going into meetings. You don't go into a meeting and just pour out your whole soul and have no boundaries. And because I remember doing that in very early recovery, thinking that everybody was there with the good intentions that I had. And I found out it, pretty much everybody got in there because they were pretty sick, <laughs> you know, um, And and I had to learn what the boundaries were and where I was safe. To share, where it was safe for me to be vulnerable. You can't just walk into a room and assume that everyone has your best interest at heart. To learn to be gentle and compassionate, I think sometimes people tell you a very harsh truth just to keep you at bay so you don't ask any more questions, so you don't want to hear anything else from them. Are you experiencing that also with the men that you're working with, Brian?
0: I see that, and really what I see is. That person probably has that same issue, and they haven't done their work around that yet, so they react very, very harshly. Also, when I am a little too edgy in how I speak to someone, it's because there's something I need to look at in myself. I'm not completely resolved with this resentment, anger, or character defect. So it's a great uh, signal or bellwether for me To show me, if I'm getting heated around a subject, there's something I need to look at or work on there. And what I tell the men that I work with is, if you really don't like someone, or if they're not your cup of tea, you pray to God, please remove this resentment, and stay away from that person. And if somebody asks you, what about Joe, you say, I don't know much about Joe. I don't spend a lot of time with him. And that's
2: all you said, right? I think that's a very, very healthy avenue to take. Let's go to uh, Jay, who is from New York and in LA. I like saying that. <laughs> Jay, welcome to Sober I in the been City. Been in New
1: York since I was sixteen.
2: So. Oh, really? Okay. All right. Well, well I'm let's, a California boy. Let's talk to Jay from LA. Jay, welcome to Sober in the City.
1: Thank you, honey.
2: You hear us talking about the honesty, the difference between the brutal honesty, the rigorous honesty, the blatant honesty. How long are you yeah. sober? What do you see and what do you experience?
1: I'm um, sober a little over 25 years. And, um, you know, the work that I do, I'm a, and always have been for 25 years, a clinical hospice nurse. So all I do is work with dying patients in their own home. And, um, And you certainly deal with some of the issues of honesty in those situations, and um, I'm also a student of the traditions and how to apply those as well as the steps. So, you know, I love that in Tradition 2, it talks about short form, there's one ultimate authority, it's not me. The longer form says there's one ultimate authority. It's a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience, meaning... I have to bring God into our interactions, I need to have threesomes, you, me, and God. And the way I do that is I look for God in you, and when I see, because we see what we look for, if I look for God in you, I'm going to see God. And then it's going to change how I treat you and how I interact with you. And if I look for God in me, which is part of this deal then I'm going to see God in me, and I'm going to behave differently. So if I live with that tradition in mind, you know, the, and the word honesty comes from the Latin meaning to honor you, honestus, to honor you. So I just try and, and use that as my barometer, as my directional navigation in how I interact with you. And if what I'm about to say is not honoring, then it probably doesn't need to be said. And I think looking at my motives is absolutely essential. Am I saying this to hurt you, to make myself look good, to be kind, to be helpful? What's my motive? because it may be true but it may not be kind it may not be useful it may not be helpful it may not be necessary it may not be interesting and and so learning how to look at that is essential i i know you know my wife died recently in my arms in our home on hospice with pancreatic cancer and um and it was really tough and she was diagnosed and and we had a great doc and that doc turned to Nancy and said, how honest do you want me to be? How much do you want to know? And Nancy said, well, I need to know what's happening. And this woman, this doctor said, well, you have a pancreatic cancer, it's stage four and it will take your life. And then she said, do you want to know? How long? I, and Nancy said, absolutely not. And then because she knew, because of my work, I would know, she was very clear with me do not tell me anything that would contradict what I believe, which is, I think I'm going to live somewhere between 12 and 15 months. And, you know, the doc said four. She ended up living seven, but she lived it fully. And, she knew that if she had a time frame of four months or seven months, that she would have been busy dying instead of living. And so she did not want the truth. And I think learning to ask people, how much do you want to know? Do you want to know the truth before we blurt it out? And then asking why somebody is asking a question. You know, I have people who say to me, how long, how long do I have to live? Some of my patients, and my response is always the same. I have no problem discussing that with you, but tell me why you want to know. And and I had a guy who said, well, well, because my only child, my daughter, is graduating Yale Law School at the end of June. I want to be there. So what they were asking wasn't, how long do I have to live, but will I be alive and well enough to travel cross-country at the end of June? But that's not the words that used. Now I could respond in a much more meaningful way than if I just blurted out, well, I think you have six weeks left. Does, does that make sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's so compassionate and so respectful. You know, to respect someone else's wishes and, and, and sorry for your loss about your wife. And, uh, but I, I think, I think it's so loving and so respectful that you were able to have that honest discussion with her of she didn't want to know. And perhaps she prolonged her life for three months longer because she believed that it was going to be longer than that beyond what the doctor had predicted. And maybe she
1: did, maybe she didn't, I'm not sure. But what I do know is she certainly improved or maintained the quality of her life in a way that she never could have done if she'd have been busy dying. You know, so she was doing stuff here at the house. She was still trying to do her martial arts. She was still doing some of her work until she stopped doing that and, Mm -hmm. you know, and and wanted to go places and do things and and just was engaged as long as I could control her pain. And, And I did that in a way that was very... Subtle in terms of its effects, but it definitely—I got on top of the pain and essentially, and prevented it rather than waiting for it to get a hold of her and trying to treat it.
2: And then, manage and so it, it
1: yeah. minimized the amount of medication, and and we used different—we used alternative pain management as well as traditional, and and it worked, and she got to to live and engage sober life you know we were on a little day trip eight days before her death
2: oh wow and
1: she was bedbound about 18 hours before her death so she stayed very functional and and I really think that a large part of it was that she was so protective of avoiding uh, what would have been the truth technically but not useful and that's that's an important distinction. I, I learned it when I, before I went to work in hospice, I worked at county hospital here and we were broke. The hospital was in the red and and we had to train the the residents and the interns and the medical students. If a test is going to, whether it's a lab test or imaging, if it's going to be interesting, we can't afford it. If it's going to be useful, go ahead and order it. We'll pay for it and that is the same with with uh, my interactions with people in program at work colleagues friends is what i'm about to say useful or is it just interesting oh my god did you hear bob and sally broke up well how is that useful it's, it's not
2: barely even it may interesting be
1: interesting to some people <laughs> Right. But, you know so that's that's another filter that you can put your words, your behaviors through, is it interesting or is it useful?
2: I really, really like that. And your wife was so fortunate to have you with her by her side and to for you to have had all that experience in knowing how to handle that. And in the last segment, we were talking about a young man that I was working with at the Believe Treatment Center here in the Palm Beaches. And when I asked him, why did you go back out? He says, well, I went out after heroin. <laughs> you know, he stayed on that very base level and I had to ask him question after question after question until I finally got down to what his answer should have been. I was procrastinating in my schoolwork and my job and I got behind and didn't feel as though I was going to get to where I was going. So I felt overwhelmed and I ended up using and now I'm in rehab. <laughs> you know, so it takes uh, uh, those questions and finding out what is useful rather than interesting because yeah. it's very interesting that you went out after heroin. That's very, I'm sure it had a very interesting story behind it.
1: <sighs> what may be more useful and it's one that i ask people is can i ask you something what why, why did and i don't really need to know why you went out but tell me why you came back and i think that's important for you to know as well as for me tell me why you came back so that they really start to know why they're here you know, oh, it wasn't it just didn't work for or I ended up beat up and and locked up or um there was there was just loneliness. It wasn't a party, it wasn't fun anymore and, and I felt so I really missed my AA friends. That's why I can whatever it is, I felt separated from God. But their knowing why they came back, I think, is a really important piece of them being able to stay.
2: I think that's a great question. Brian, what do you think of that question when you ask somebody? Do you ever do that? Tell us why it is you came back.
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it's crucial for me to hear as many of those stories as possible. In my work as an interventionist and sober coach, the motivation is very important. You know, what brings people back, what sustains them, what gives them the courage to keep on going. I think being in recovery, there's an element of grace and there's an element of courage.
2: What is it that you usually hear why people come back?
0: The loneliness is very big, and something happens. There is an intervention.
2: So they're usually coming back for legal battles or uh, an intervention?
0: Yeah, or a big health, you know, they they end up finally, you know, in, in the hospital for three days. Mm-hmm. And so they accidentally detox. <laughs> accidentally and, detox and
2: they accidentally detox. I love that.
0: <laughs> then they, then they uh, decide to give recovery a try.
2: <laughs> That's great. What do you hear, Jay?
0: You know, all all sorts
1: of things, mostly why didn't you tell us, you know, and I think sometimes we lie by omission. We don't always tell people who are new, by the way, whether you stay in our program or not, it will ruin your drinking or it will ruin your using. And never again will you have the ability to just get completely comfortable in your disease, there'll always be that chatty head, that chatty voice saying, you could be in a meeting right now, you could be at at fellowship, you could...
2: You should be you know, calling you your sponsor.
1: So, <laughs> you should be so doing this. <laughs> we don't always tell people that, but I think it's almost always the truth that when they go back out after being around, and I don't mean for they come in and they're here for four days and go out, but if they've got a little time, even 30 or 60 days, and they go out, it's different. And they, they miss us.
3: Yeah, they but let's miss, not tell them.
1: What happened in the rooms, that level of acceptance and non-judgmental, unconditional, embracing and loving. And um, and it's hard. I, I think we come in the rooms. You know, I know I did. I, I was Humpty Dumpty broken, you know, like all the king's horses and all the king's men could never have put me back together again. And, and I was so shattered and I was so filled with shame and self-hate. And I encountered a level, I, you know, I just say in, in that first meeting I felt the breath of a God in whom I didn't believe blowing on me with a gentleness that I did not deserve and that I had not earned.
3: Hmm.
1: And it changed my life forever. It, you know, it just, it was the grace of God, the breath of God. And it reminds me, you know, I do, I used to try very hard to stay out of prison. And these days I try very hard to get into prison. And and one of the things I do in my work is I consult with prisons around the country on creating or improving hospice and palliative care programs for inmates dying behind bars. And one of the prisons I go to is Angola State Penitentiary down in Louisiana. It's the largest maximum security prison in the country. Eighty-nine percent of the men will die behind bars. Okay. And they also have an active death chamber. And I have stood in that death chamber with the warden. And um, I remember one time asking him, Burl, uh, that's his name, Burl Cain, what, 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 the last three guys executed in this room, what did they do? And he told me. Oh, my God, a level of personal brutality and cruelty that was almost beyond imagination. Mm -hmm. And he turned and he looked me dead in the eye and he said, but you know what, Jay, every man who's executed in this room, I hold his hand, I tell him he's loved, and I tell him he's not alone. And it's like that warden lives what anyone who has ever heard me speak has heard me say, and that is that God has no grandkids, honey, only kids. And God doesn't make junk. God has no grandkids, only kids, and God doesn't make junk. And most of us go out into the world and behave as though we believe that when God made us, he made junk. um, Yes, we do. come into the rooms and and we're treated differently and in a way that makes that lie harder and harder to tell. Yes,
2: it's harder and harder to believe that lie that we are Mm -hmm. telling ourselves. Jay, Brian, and Lynn, thank you for being with us. When we come back, more about how did you start to become honest with others, with yourself? How does blatant honesty hurt others? And how can we be honest in all our affairs? We'll answer that and more. Sober in the City will be right back. And Unleashed like everything you gave away to the dope man in addiction we actually will be right back
1: when i got the news today i didn't know what to say so i just hung up the phone i took a walk to clear my head and this is where the walk-in led can't believe
3: you're really gone Don't feel like going home So I'm gonna sit right here
2: At Believe Treatment Center, we understand. We understand you are struggling. That's why our treatment nourishes mind, body, and spirit. We understand that recovery works differently for everyone. That's why we design individual treatment programs specifically for you. At Believe Treatment Center, we understand that it's not easy. That's why we offer a comprehensive scope of services including nutrition, massage, chiropractic, and aftercare for you and even for your family. Believe Treatment Center is a 12-step friendly, state-of-the-art facility Located in gorgeous Palm Beach County, Florida We are experts in all types of addiction and recovery And we are proud sponsors of Sober in the City To find out more about our program And how your insurance may cover your treatment Call us today at 1-855-874-2354 That's 855-874-2354 1-855-874-2354 Or visit BelieveTreatmentCenter.com Believe Treatment Center We understand.